We're going to turn our Bibles to the book of Galatians. The book of Galatians this evening. Galatians chapter number 4. And uh, I'd like to preach a, a message again that... Uh, as we think about the Christmas season and, and, and gave you a thought this morning from that and we move into the uh, time of year where we will be preaching messages about the Christmas season. Again, this is exciting to me. Uh, I enjoy this. I enjoy the opportunity to go through uh, some of the verses that the Bible has uh, uh, to talk about the Christmas story and Galatians chapter 4 is one of those. Galatians chapter 4 and down in verse number 4. And we're going to talk about God sending forth His Son tonight. God sending forth His Son. And we're going to look at some reasons in this passage why God sent forth His Son. And I trust tonight will be an encouragement, maybe even a blessing to you. And maybe may we be reminded again, maybe afresh and anew, that God sent His Son and why He did it for us. So Galatians chapter 4, and look with me if you would at verse number 4. What a great Christmas verse this is. Galatians chapter 4 and verse number 4. The Bible says this, But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law. Now that's the verse we're going to use as our text. There's a few verses that follow that verse that are going to help us to understand why God sent His Son. But the Bible tells us again, verse 4, But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law. You might remember this is a, one of the Bible verses that we had committed to memory during the Christmas season. And uh, so this is a special verse to us, Galatians chapter 4 and verse number 4, and the great truths that are in it. And so real quickly, let's look at verse number 4, and then again some verses that follow that to help us to understand why God sent forth His Son. Look with me if you would at verse number 4 again, just the very first part. It says this, but when the fullness of the time was come. Well, Paul's right there, but when the fullness of the time was come. What is he trying to say there in verse number 4? He's saying that God's perfect timing was in all of this, wasn't it? God didn't make a mistake as far as his timing is concerned. God has a schedule. God is able to keep that schedule in its perfect, uh, in its perfect way. Uh, we we uh, preached uh, uh, several weeks ago, even on a Sunday morning, about how that we have to get to a place where we realize that our schedule uh, may not be what God's schedule is. Our timing may not be what God's timing is. And, uh, but, 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 but by the way, why don't, we, why don't we learn to always run our lives by God's calendar, by God's schedule, and to be patient enough to wait at times. And that's exactly what individuals even had to do for the Messiah to come. They had to wait, but it was in God's perfect timing. But when the fullness of the time was come. By the way, the, the very first part of this verse corresponds to the end of verse number 2. Would you look up at verse number 2, and let's notice the end of verse number 2. It says this, until the time, now this is the end of verse number 2, about halfway through that verse, until the time appointed of the Father. Again, God's got a timetable, doesn't He? And the time that is appointed by Him is all that really matters. That's the timetable that's important. That's the calendar of events that's very important. And so God had a perfect timing in all of this. A timing that was even understood, by the way, before the foundation of the world. You say, well, how do we know that's true? Because we can go back to even the very first mention of the gospel that's found in the book of Genesis. 
In the very beginning of our Bible, Genesis chapter 3 and verse number 15, what we would call is that, that verse that's the proto-evangelium verse, the idea of the first mention of the gospel there, that God was going to come. He was going to send his, God was going to send his son. God would come in human flesh and he would die on a cross. And when he died on that cross, remember, I'll put enmity between thee and the woman between thy seed and her seed, he says, as he gives the curse, the punishment to the serpent, the first mention of the gospel there. And he talked about how that the heel of Jesus would be bruised when he died on the cross, but the head of Satan would be crushed, wouldn't it? The head of Satan to be crushed when Jesus died on that cross, the first mention of the gospel. So God's time was in all of this. Before even the foundation of the world, he knew that man would uh, fall into sin he knew that the fall would take place that we read about in Genesis chapter number 3. And then he understood that there would be a redemption plan that would need to take place. And so again, in God's perfect timing, before even the foundation of the world, uh, what, 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 before the world was even founded, God had a plan in all of this and a timing that was perfect, that was correct. But then look at the next part of the verse. He says, but when the fullness of the time was come, now notice the next part, God sent forth His Son, God sent forth His Son. Now that speaks to us a few things that we would say are, are, are doctrines, are things that we believe to be true of Jesus. He says, God sent forth His Son, which means out of heaven, Jesus was sent from God. So God sent forth His Son. So God was the one that sent forth His Son. He was already existing in heaven. So the, one of the things that we believe about Jesus is that there was pre, the, the pre-existence of Jesus. The fact that He always existed. He didn't have a, a, a beginning point, a starting point like we would think that you and I have. We, we don't think of His manger as being His starting point, right? He, he already existed in heaven. So God was sent from heaven by God to come down in human flesh. So think about that. The pre-existence of God, but then also the incarnation of God. That he came here in human flesh. Then notice verse number four again, if you would, the third part of this verse. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son. Now notice the next part. Made of a woman. Made of a woman. Now God conceived that child Jesus in the womb of, that, of, his, of his mother Mary by the Holy Ghost, that child was conceived, and it was through the, through the, the, the birth, through uh, the, the virgin, the virgin birth. Now, again, we talked about that this morning, certainly a doctrine that we hold true, a doctrine that we would stand by, right? Jesus was born of a virgin. I think about, uh, matter of fact, I, I, I mentioned it to somebody here uh, even today about how that there are other versions of the Bible that individuals might choose to use. Here at our church, we use the King James Version. And we stand by the King James Version because we realize in some of the other versions, there are verses that are taken out, verses that are removed. And a lot of those deal with very important doctrines. There are versions of the Bible that talk about Mary being just a young woman. It wasn't just a young woman. Any, any, any young woman could have, uh, could have uh, certainly been in, included in that if you just call her a young woman, but she was a virgin, right? 
And so Jesus was born of a virgin. So he came, the Bible says he came uh, forth, uh, sent by God, made of a woman, conceived again by the Holy Ghost, that virgin birth. And then look at the end of verse number four, made under the law. So Jesus was made subject to the law really in two different ways. Number one, by his father's appointment of that, but then also by his free choice, his willingness to do that. His willingness to be made subject to the law. And as a result of that, as he perfectly fulfilled the law, he was then able as a perfect substitute and sacrifice for us, able to die on the cross because he was able through his perfection, through his holiness, he was able to meet the demands of a righteous God, wasn't he? He was a sacrifice that met the holy demands of a righteous God. Now let's notice in the passage a few reasons why God, was, God sent forth his son tonight. I hope this will be an encouragement to you. Look with me if you would at verse number 5. Some reasons why God sent forth his son from heaven. May we just rejoice in these tonight. May they just be encouragers tonight. As we think of the Christmas time when Jesus came, why did God send forth his son? I want you to notice number one, we find this in verse number five, to redeem us from the bondage of sin. Number one, to redeem us from the bondage of sin. Notice the Bible says in verse number 5, the very first part of that verse, it says this, to redeem them that were under the law. So there was a plan of redemption, wasn't there? There was a reason behind why God sent his son to redeem us from the bondage of sin. Now what is, we think about that word redemption. What does it mean to be redeemed? We sing about that, don't we? Redeemed, how I love to proclaim it, right? redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And that's a good doctrinal word, isn't it? And we think about the doctrine that's found in, in that word redemption and being redeemed. And by the way, we see it right there in verse number 5, to redeem them that were under the law. But what does it mean? Well, it has the idea of releasing from slavery or captivity by a payment of ransom. Would you consider that this morning when it comes to, or excuse me, this evening when it comes to our salvation? We've been released from slavery, haven't we? We were in the slavery of our sin, which by the way, we're going to talk about this several times throughout the evening tonight as we talk about some reasons why God sent his son. So this is not the only time we'll bring this up, but we were, re uh, we were uh, released from slavery or captivity when Christ paid the price for us on the cross the payment was, been, was made to ransom us. So God purchased us with his precious blood. By the way, the Bible talks about that in the book of Corinthians. We are bought with a price. We're purchased with the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as a result of that redemption, we were given freedom. We were in the slavery and the bondage and the captivity of our sin. But because we could say we're redeemed, we have been given freedom because we've been purchased and the freedom that comes along with that. So there's a couple reasons why we are redeemed today. Well, we're redeemed from the curse of the law. Think about the curse that the law would have upon us. God's law shows us how sinful we are, doesn't it? The law doesn't save us. We're not able to be saved by just saying, well, I'm going to keep the law, therefore I'll be able to be saved. We're not saved by the law but the law reveals to us how sinful we really are. 
Remember, the Bible says in Galatians chapter 4 that Jesus was made under the law, which means he was subject to the law and he was able to keep the law, wasn't he? But we would not be able to keep the law. So therefore, we've been redeemed from the curse of the law. God's law, again, showing us how sinful we are and how desperately we need a Savior because of the, uh, the, 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 what the law reveals to us. So we are redeemed from the curse of the law. Then we are redeemed from the control of sin. From the control of sin. Aren't you thankful that when you, when you trusted Jesus as your Savior, He, he saved you uh, from the power of sin in your life? You think about how He saved you from all of your past sin, all of your present sin, all of your future sins have been uh, washed away. And so we don't have to worry about the, the, the penalty of sin anymore. We don't have to worry about if we've trusted Christ our Savior. We don't have to worry about the fact that we're, there's, a, there's a punishment. There's a penalty for sin for the wages of sin is death. So there's a penalty. But because we've trusted Christ as our Savior, we don't have to worry about the penalty of sin. And by the way, when we're a child of God on earth here today, we really don't even need to worry about the power of sin in our lives as well because God can give us victory over even the power of sin in our present day that we live on this earth as well. But then think about one day we're going to get to spend eternity with Christ and we won't even have to worry anymore about even the very presence of sin. And think about how that special that's going to be. We get to be with the Lord and so why did he redeem us? Well, he redeemed us from the curse of the law, but he also redeemed us from the control of sin in our lives. So we, as God's children, we do not have to be under the control of sin today because we're redeemed, right? We're redeemed. Again, redeemed how I love to proclaim it. And then he also redeemed us from the captivity of the old life. Now, we understand that we still have that old nature, don't we? Still have that old man Still have that flesh, don't we? And there's a battle that goes on, right? You know, when we got saved, our flesh didn't, right? We understand that. When we got saved, our flesh didn't get saved. And so as a result of that, there is a battle that goes on. It reminds us of what Paul said in the book of Romans where he said, hey, the things that I know I should do, those are the things that are challenging. Those are the things that are difficult to do. And he said, the things that I know I ought to stay away from, those are the things I find myself doing. What's that? That's the battle between the old nature, between the old man and the new man, right? The flesh and the spirit, right? We talk about that in the book of Galatians. Well, I know we're in Galatians tonight, but in Galatians chapter 5, it gives us the works of the flesh. But then it's followed up with a list that talks about the fruit of the spirit. There's a difference between the flesh and the spirit, right? When we're redeemed, God is trying to say, I have redeemed you from the captivity of that old life. So redemption involves going from something to something else. Consider with me what we just talked about, how that redemption means that we've gone from being in the slavery of our sin. We've gone from looking at the law as the answer, if we could just keep the law. No, we don't have to look to the law, right? We don't have to try to fulfill the law. And so we went from something to something else. We went from being controlled by sin and the captivity of the old life to now saying there is freedom. So Christ freed us from the bondage of sin and slavery to a new life of freedom in Him. That's why God sent His Son. God sent His Son, number one, to redeem us from the bondage of sin. But then would you notice number two? 
Why did God send forth his son? Number two, look at the end of verse number five, and then we'll move on into verse number six. And I want to give you the second reason why God sent forth his son. Number one, to redeem us from the bondage of sin. But number two, to receive us into his family. To receive us into his family. Notice the Bible talks about how we are adopted. Look at this, verse five. Notice the end of the verse. That we might receive the adoption of sons. I think I studied through the, the, uh, the, the word adoption. And I don't know that I'm going to get the number exactly correct. But I think the word adoption only appears in the Bible maybe around five times. We don't, we don't see the word adoption a whole lot. But we understand that when we come to the word adoption, we understand it's talking about being placed into the family of God. And there's several things that go with it that we're going to talk about. Look at what he says at the end of verse number 5 again. That we might receive the adoption of sons. And because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Man, that's the, that's the, that's the term of, of endearment for the Father, right? It's almost as us saying to God, not in a disrespectful way, not in, 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 in any way would we say it's a disrespectful way, but it's almost like us coming up to God, our Father, and knowing there's such a close relationship that we could say to Him, Daddy. Just like a child would say to their, to their father, Hey, Daddy, there's just something special about that, right? And God says... It's as if you can come up to me as, as, as you would your father, daddy, Abba, father. We've been received into the family of God. There's a couple of truths we want to remember about adoption. Adoption places us into a family in which we did not naturally belong. Would you think about that tonight about adoption? Now, I understand that we would think about that in, in, in the day we live today as well. When we think of individuals that adopt a child into their family, they're placed into a family in which they did not naturally belong. And we did not, we, we, we spiritually speaking, did not naturally belong in this family that God has received us into because we're sinners, aren't we? By nature, we have a sin problem, don't we? I always say this in Good News Club. Every one of you children, I'll say to them, you've been, you've been born with a sin nature, a want to to sin. And the, the best way that we can ever explain, I think personally to a child, what we mean by a sin nature is this. No one has to teach you how to sin. We, we have that almost that want to to sin, do that which we should not do. But instead, what do we teach children? We teach them how to do those things that are right. How to do those things that are good. Because naturally, because of that sin nature, they're already going to do that which they should not do. We've all got a sin nature, don't we? And so we've been placed into a family that we naturally do not belong to. So here's what adoption does. Adoption means that we have complete freedom from any former relationship. You say, what do you mean by that? Former relationship. Well, think about the law. We were under the bondage or the curse of the law. Now we don't have to think about that being the relationship that would warrant our way to heaven or gain us access to heaven. But no, he says, now you've been adopted into my family. And here's what I would say probably is one of the greatest blessings of adoption. Adoption gives us all of the rights and privileges of being in God's family. 
All of the rights and privileges, but can I say this? It also gives to us responsibility, doesn't it? Because with privileges comes responsibility. To whom much is given, much shall be required, right? So God says, you're adopted into my family. Which means that because you've been adopted into my family, all the rights and all the privileges of any child, God says, you have those rights and you have those privileges. And you know, I would say we would even look at our lives from time to time and we'd say, well, we'd have to be guilty though of saying that we don't always act like the son or daughter that we should act like, that even though we've been adapt adopted into the family of God. But that does not mean we'll ever lose those rights and privileges. Isn't that wonderful? You know, I would think about, I, I, remember, I remember years and years and years ago working at the uh, Bill Rice Ranch. And uh, Dr. Bill would many times use the illustration of adoption and he would talk about being placed into the family of God and he used his own his own family as an illustration and he said I could think of my father uh, Dr. Dr. Bill Rice of course I'm referring to the the uh, the one that that was in charge of the Bill Rice Ranch when I was there would be Dr. Bill Rice the third so he would be referring to his father Dr. Bill Rice the second and he said I would uh, my, my father would look at me and he would say now you're a rice and he said, because you're a rice, he said, there are some things that we teach you that you should do and that you shouldn't do. And he says, as I was being punished for things, Dr. Bill would always say, as I was being punished for things, he said, my dad would look at me and say, now you know what you just did is something that rices are not supposed to do. Maybe perhaps we've had that presented to us in, in some kind of a way, like he illustrated there, that you, you haven't done what you should have done because of the family that you're in and what you've been taught. We've been placed into the family of God. Sometimes we may not always act like the child of God that we should act like, but aren't you thankful we're never taken out of his family? I'm adopted into the family of God and I have those full rights and privileges that any child of God would have because I'm adopted, I'm adopted, I'm adopted into the family of God. Now think about this. I think it goes so well with the message tonight. Brother Drew Hay was here a couple weeks ago. And he gave an illustration as I was preparing this message. It made me think of that. It made me think of that illustration he gave just, what, two weeks ago when he was here? He talked about the camper that he has that his family travels in. And he said that when his children want to come in the camper, you might remember this when he was here preaching. He said when the, the children want to come in the camper, he said they don't have to get any kind of special permission because we're the parents, right? But he said, now, if any other child would want to come in the camper and they'd want to have the full rights and privileges of my children, he said, that would be a little bit, that, that, that would be a little odd, wouldn't it? You know, somebody comes in the camper, I think you probably remember the illustration he gave, and I think he even talked about starting to prepare food or something and sit down and start eating in the camper. And he said, looking at him, thinking, you know what, you feel like you have the right and privilege to just kind of come on in here? But isn't that great with God, though? We're adopted into his family. So we have all of the rights and privileges that come. Think about some of these. We have the family name, don't we? Hey, we're Christians today, aren't we? Because we've been saved, we've been redeemed, we've been adopted into the family of God. So we have the family name. And then think about this. We have the family love, don't we? 
Think of the love that we have one for another because of this family that we are part of. I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. We call each other brother and sister, right? There's a love that we have for one another. Even that song says, I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. We have a family love, don't we? But then think about this. We have family service as well. We get to serve the Lord together. The way that he, what he desires to be done for the work of the Lord, we're able to do. We're able to be his hands and his feet and his mouth on earth here today as we serve the Lord with one another together. And then think about this. There's also, this is the sobering part. There's also family chastisement that comes because of being adopted into the family of God, which means that there's some times when our Heavenly Father is going to have to correct us, right? The best illustration I can possibly use for that is this, and you would understand it as parents, especially tonight, even if you have adult children, when you're corrected, when there was times when you corrected your children perhaps, if you think about illustration of myself correcting my children, I would be able to correct my children in different ways than I can correct anyone else's children, right? If I would try to uh, perhaps correct somebody else's child the way that I do mine, that might not go over well in the world we live today. I'd say, well, I don't like the, what they're doing. And that's something I wouldn't let my child do, so I, they need to be corrected. And I think we all understand where we're going with that. But chastisement is a little bit different. Correction can be a little bit different when it's my own children, right? God says, hey, you're part of my family. And because you're part of my family, there will be some chastening that takes place from time to time. Correction to be able to get us in line so that we're doing what God would have us to do. All part of adoption, right? All part of being in the family of God. And then, by the way, we're going to touch on this a little bit later. So keep this in mind because I'm going to pass over it real quick. But think about this. Because we've been adopted, we have the family inheritance as well, don't we? The inheritance that comes along with being part of the family of God, being adopted into his family. And again, we'll touch on that in just a moment. But I want you to notice number three tonight. Why did God send forth his son? In verse 5 and then in verse number 6, we notice to redeem us from the bondage of sin and then to receive us into the family of God. But then we're going to go, we're going to have, we're going to have opportunity to see another great doctrine here tonight. We've seen two already. We've seen the doctrine, the great doctrine of redemption. We've seen the great doctrine of adoption. But I also want us to look at the great doctrine of reconciliation as well. Notice number three, and I want to look at verse number seven. To reconcile us to himself. To reconcile us to himself. Man, these are some rich, rich doctrinal words here tonight. He's redeemed us. He's adopted us. And he has reconciled us. All right, now notice verse number seven. I want you to notice this. Look at verse number seven. Look at the very first part of this verse. It says, Wherefore thou art no more a servant, but a son. Now, I understand that the start of that verse is going in connection with verse number six. So I understand we're still talking about adoption. But I want us to go a step further and notice there's a difference between one position and another position that's mentioned in verse number 7. Notice it says, Wherefore thou art no more a servant. That's one position. You, you could be a servant, right? But he says, No longer are you a servant. But he says, Now you are a son. Now real quick, before we put those two together and help us to understand what we mean. Remember I told you we'd come back to the thought of, of being in, 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 in servitude or, or, or bondage or, or, the, or the slavery of our sin. We told you we'd come back to that. 
Certainly we understand that when we're thinking about the, the position of being a servant. But let's think about this word reconcile. When we use that word reconciliation, which is a Bible word, we find that word right in the Bible. What does that mean? It means to bring together again that which was separated or that which was at war. So we think about reconciliation, we're thinking about bringing something together, bringing someone together that had something that caused distance between them. Now we understand what causes distance between ourselves and the Savior. We understand the reason why we need to be reconciled. Because we are sinners, right? There's sin that stands between us and the Savior. Well, let's go back to the verse. Look at verse number 7 again. We're going to try to put all this together. Wherefore, thou art no more a servant, but a son. Again, now there's the position of being a servant, but then there's the position of being a son. Now, I want us to look at that servant, that word servant in a couple different ways because really that word servant could be described or be defined in a couple different ways. One way we could describe the word servant or define the word servant is someone who is living in the servitude of their sin. I'm a servant or a slave to sin. As a matter of fact, the Bible talks a little bit about that when it talks about the members of our body. Man, I love that passage of Scripture. It talks to us about the members of our body, and it says that we are, because we know Jesus as our Savior, we are not to use the members of our body as instruments of unrighteousness. We're not to yield them as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, meaning we should not serve sin with the members of our body, but instead we're to yield them as instruments of righteousness unto God. So no longer do we yield them as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin. No longer are we servants or slaves to sin. And certainly our parts of our body should not serve or be slaves to sin either. But instead we're to yield to the things of righteousness. So one way we can define that word servant is being under the servitude or again the bondage of sin. Remember again we told you we'd come back to that word. But then another way we can define the word servant has to do with something we've talked about already tonight as well. Remember we told you that we were redeemed from the curse of the law. Another way that we can define the word servant is we can say that a servant was treated as a servant because he was bound under the law. Because he was bound by the law, he was treated as a servant. So we think about living or being in the servitude of sin or being in the bondage or being bound under the law, being a slave to the law. Now, isn't it good to know that we are no longer in bondage? If we know Jesus Christ is our Savior, again, I know it goes back to the word redeemed, but we are in freedom now, aren't we? We're no longer in bondage. We're no longer in the slavery of our sin. So that's where this word reconciled comes in. There was some distance between us and God because of sin that stood in the way. We were slaves to our sin. But God says, no longer are you slaves to your sin. But because you've been reconciled by God, now you are a son. Well, that's a blessing, isn't it? Again, I know it goes in connection with the thought of being adopted. We're a son, a child of God. But consider tonight the reconciliation we have in Jesus Christ as well. We were servants to sin. Now no longer do we serve sin. No longer are we under that bondage. 
But the death of Jesus Christ provides the grounds upon which God, in harmony with His perfect holiness, is able to save even the, as Paul says, the chiefest of sinners. The worst sinner that Paul can describe. He describes himself as the chiefest of sinners. God, Paul says, He's able to save me. And He's able to save us to the uttermost, isn't He? That call upon God by Christ Jesus. So the death of Christ provides that grounds then upon which God in harmony with His holiness is able to save us as the worst of sinners, place us into His family and make us sons. No longer slaves, but sons. Now, we think of the word servant or we think of the word slave Many times, maybe not perhaps us, but many in our world would think of the word slave as, as we're really with a negative thought. We'd say, you know, you know being a slave or being a servant and you have a master that's over you, that kind of comes with a negative idea there. But now let's turn this thing around for a moment. We were in the slavery of our sin. Now we've been brought to God. We've been reconciled. No longer does sin stand in the way. There's nothing that stands between me and Christ now because my sin has been forgiven. But, and, and, and I'm a son now. He says, I'm a son. But isn't it wonderful to consider the fact that really you are still a servant? But a servant in the good way. You're a servant of, for the one who died for you. And think about that. To, to give really your life for him because of what he's done for you. I want to read First uh, uh, John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3 and verse number 2. And the Bible says this in 1 John chapter 3 and verse number 2. Probably a very familiar verse to you. It says, Beloved, now are we the sons of God. And it doth not appear, and, and it doth not yet, excuse me, appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We are no longer a slave. But now we are a son. And because we are a son, we're happy then again to be a slave or a servant for our heavenly father. Number one, we said we're redeemed from the bondage of our sin. And then the Bible tells us that we are received into the family of God. We are reconciled unto God. But then the last thing I want you to notice is found at the very end of verse number seven tonight. The very end of verse number 7, we're going to see the third reason why God sent forth His Son. And we have one other passage of Scripture that I want you to turn to tonight, and we'll finish with that tonight. Number 4, I want you to notice this. Not only did we say to redeem us from the bondage of sin, and to receive us into His family, and to reconcile us unto Himself, but number 4, to ready us for His coming. God sent His Son to ready us for His coming. All that we would be ready for the day that he returns. See, if, if God had not sent his son made of a woman, made under the law, if he didn't come at that perfect timing, we at this point in our lives would still not be ready for heaven, would we? We wouldn't be ready for eternity. We wouldn't be ready for his coming. But because he sent his son, we can be ready for his coming. Look with me, if you would, the end of verse number 7. The end of verse number 7, it says this. And if a son, okay, so no longer I'm a servant. I'm reconciled unto God. No longer am I a servant. I'm now a son. And look at this. And if a son, then an heir 
of God through Christ. Now, I told you we would come back to our family inheritance. We have a family inheritance that God has given to us. That means the possessions of every blessing which God allows on those that are saved, we get to look forward to through all of eternity. Are you ready for that? Are you prepared for that? All the blessings of heaven and eternity with the Lord. Now you say, well, wait a minute. God gives us blessings while we're here on earth as well. Yes, absolutely. God gives blessings to us. He showers us with blessings while we're here on earth. But think about that inheritance that awaits us. To be ready for when Christ returns for that inheritance that awaits us. All that God says is a blessing for those that are saved. We're going to get to take part in all of that someday, aren't we? You, you've probably heard it said like this. You know, we, we hear that song, God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. You've heard that, right? The wealth in every mine. He owns the rivers and the rocks and rills, sun and stars that shine. Wonderful riches only God can tell. He is the owner, and it says, so they're mine as well. I heard somebody once say it this way, God owns the cattle on a thousand hills and because he does, we do as well. Isn't that wonderful to know we have the inheritance. We are an heir of everything that is God's. So it, it reminds us of the fact that we, are, we, we, we can be ready for his coming, prepared for that inheritance that awaits us. As he says, if a son, then an heir of God through Christ because of what Christ has done for us, we can be ready for his coming and we can be excited about the inheritance that awaits us. I told you I'd look at one more passage and we'll be done. Look at Romans chapter 8 if you would. Romans chapter 8. And we're going to look at just a few verses here in Romans chapter 8. And we'll finish with this tonight. Romans chapter 8 and verse number 15. Look there if you would. Romans chapter 8 and verse number 15. And by the way, this passage of scripture is another passage that deals with the adoption of sons. The fact that we're adopted into the family of God. Look at verse 15. For we have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. It reminds us of what we read in Galatians, right? We're able to cry, Daddy, Father, and come to him because of that close relationship that we have. But then look at verse 16. The spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Now let me ask you, have you ever had a time where the Holy Spirit of God has been able to bear witness with your spirit that you are one of his children? We have times that that takes place, don't we? He bears witness with our spirit. We're children of God. We have an inheritance waiting for us. We are ready for the day that he's going to come back. We're prepared. God's preparing something for us and we're prepared to receive it, aren't we? Think about that. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I said, I will come again, receive you unto myself that where I am, there you may be also. And he already said at the start of that passage, I've gone to prepare a mansion, streets of gold that we're going to get to walk on. Think about the foundations of that city and that beautiful river of life and then crowns that we'll be able to receive as we've labored for the Lord, again, based upon the motive of why we did what we did for the Lord, and to receive those crowns, but we'll cast them back at His feet, won't we? 
Because we're not worthy of that crown. But all oh, he is so worthy. God sent his son so that we could be ready for his coming. We'd be adopted to his family. And his spirit bears witness with our spirit that we're a child of God. But watch this now. We're not done. Look at verse number 17. And if children... Now, wait a minute. This almost sounds like what we read in Galatians 4, right? Because he said the words, and if sons. Well, if sons, then you're an heir. Well, notice what he says in Romans. And if children, then heirs. Isn't it great? We're reading what we read in, in the book of Galatians. Really a parallel passage of that, aren't we? And then notice what he says. Then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Then notice it goes on, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. And think of that glorification, that time we're going to get to again spend eternity with the Lord. All to say, yes, there might be times of suffering here on earth. But man, think about the glory that awaits. As a matter of fact, that's what the next verse says. Look at verse 18. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. It's, it's Paul's way of saying, God, I, I'm, I'm ready. I, I, I'm prepared for your coming. I've labored out of love for you. I realize there is an inheritance uh, that awaits me. I'm joint heirs with Jesus Christ. And yes, I might go through some suffering here on earth. Nothing can be to be compared to the glory that's going to be revealed in us when we get to meet the Lord and to spend eternity with Him. Why did God send His Son to ready us for His coming? And so I ask you tonight, by way of maybe perhaps just encouragement tonight, would you consider these four reasons why God sent His Son? And may we maybe perhaps tonight just thank the Lord for this. See, I've already thanked the Lord for it even today. Let's do it again tonight. Let's do it again tonight. Let's thank the Lord again tonight. Lord, thank you for redeeming me from the bondage of sin. Thank you, Lord, for receiving me into your family. I'm adopted into the family of God. Thank you, Lord, for reconciling me unto yourself. Thank you, Lord, that I could say I am ready for your coming and all that awaits the inheritance that I have because I am a child of God. All of this sounds like something that none of us deserve. But aren't you thankful that God is a God of grace and he gives to us what we do not deserve. And he's a God of mercy. He withholds from us that which we really do deserve. Oh, let's thank God for sending his son and the reasons why we see he sent his son in Galatians chapter 4. Father, thank you for the truths of this passage tonight. Lord, I thank you for redemption. I know these are some great doctrine words. I thank you for redemption. I thank you for adoption. 